Well, hello, this is E.J. McMahon. I'm the Manhattan Institute Senior Fellow for Tax and Budgetary Studies and Director of the Manhattan Institute's Empire Center for New York State Policy. And with me today is my colleague, Nicole Gelinas, who is a Senior Fellow at the Manhattan Institute and Contributing Editor to City Journal. Good morning, Nicole. Good morning, E.J. Good to talk to you, as always. Good to talk to you, too. And our subject today is the Metropolitan Transportation Authority of New York State, and in particular, the MTA's payroll. As you know, Nicole, last week, the Empire Center posted the latest version of the complete MTA payroll on our government transparency website, which is www.seethroughny.net. And that's like all of the information on that website. It's a complete searchable database. You can go through there and see the names and titles and salaries of all of the people who work for the MTA, which in 2009 was 74,708 people. And uh, this attracted a lot of notice. I think people are always fascinated to see how much is earned by people who work for the MTA. And of course, in the bigger context, the MTA is having a lot of financial problems. I guess to begin with, Nicole, perhaps we can talk about how this how this relates to the MTA's larger problem. Where do they stand now again? Do they, they have a very large deficit and they're planning various service cutbacks, right? Sure. They started this year with an $800 million deficit. And unfortunately, well, the service cuts that the MTA has announced, some of which they have voted upon, things like closing 400 token booths, cutting two entire subway lines, cutting back on bus service, these things have a big effect on the public, but they do not save very much money. It takes a lot to even save $100 million for the MTA. And when you look at the payroll data, this see-through-ny.net data shows you that MCA workers make nearly $6 billion in cash pay, $5.92 billion. So until we start to think about how do we pare this number down or at least keep it from growing, they're really fighting a losing battle in, in service cuts that save small amount of money relatively to the effect on the public and the problem that they face. Looking at their budget, no matter how you slice it, the biggest single cost center for the MTA, which shouldn't be surprising when you think about it, is their payroll. Not just limited to salaries, but of course the benefits and pension benefits and all the things that go with it. And we're even just talking about the salaries. What interested me was, you know, the MTA has been making efforts to supposedly to, to sort of trim its workforce on the management side, at least, and to hold down costs. They had an arbitration award for the, to their major uh, transit workers union last year that awarded raises of 4% a year over two years. I note that even with those efforts by management to hold down costs, their total payroll costs in 2009 went up 2.4%. Of course, this was a period when the CPI was essentially zero. I guess that seemingly small percentage translates into a big increase in expenditures, doesn't it? Right. And, you know, you, you talked about the uh, inflation figures. Personal income in New York City, which is the job market where most of these people would have to go find alternative employment if they weren't happy with their pay, this was down 3.3% in New York City last year. So the MTA certainly does not have to offer raises to keep a competitive workforce. And you talked about labor being the biggest expenditure for the MTA. Just to give listeners an idea, you know, we hear about the MTA's massive five-year capital plan, $30 billion over five years. Payroll rivals these capital expenditures, so you can't fix the MTA to make sure that you're investing enough money in 
subway cars, buses, track, and so forth, unless you deal with these payroll numbers as well. And of course, unlike capital, payroll is it's not something that you kind of write off over a long period of time. It's just constant, and it's part of your basic operating expenditure. Right, um, and this is the same problem that automakers, General Motors, Chrysler, have faced, putting too much money into labor. You cannot invest in the, the physical assets that you need to, to grow the business, in this case, grow the economy. Well, let's take a look at some of what the average salaries actually are, because this garnered a lot of headlines and news media attention when we issued the updated payroll last week. As we noted, for a second consecutive year, more than 10% of the MTA's total workforce, well, over 8,000 people, took home $100,000 or more in total salary, including overtime and other extra pay last year. There were, in fact, there were six people who made more than 250 grand, but there were 7,500 people who earned between 100000 and $150,000. Eleven of the people who earned over 150000 were car repairmen on the Long Island Railroad who earned an average of $167,000. Other titles that were in earning over $150,000 included Long Island Railroad and Metro North conductors, who were earning an average of $86,000 more than their base salaries, which actually averaged $76,000, roughly. There were bridge and tunnel sergeants and police lieutenants who averaged $94,000 over their base pay, which was $82,000. There were Long Island Railroad and Metro North engineers who were earning you know, an average of $89,000 more than their base pay, which started out at seventy-eight. There were police officers for the MTA. They were gang foremen on the Long Island Railroad. I mean, how is it possible for somebody to earn more than their entire base salary in overtime and differential? We have a bunch of bleary-eyed guys running around working 16-hour shifts. What's going on? Well, it's extraordinary, and much of this has to do with work rules. You know, I was just speaking to a gentleman the other day who's an engineer for one of the commuter railroads, and he was saying, for example, if you have a car that needs a piece of sheet metal replaced, one person could do this job in a few hours, but the MTA work rules mandate that you have three separate people with three separate job titles to come and do this. And of course, they've all got to wait for one another to show up. They need supervision. So you've turned fairly simple job into an, an all-day job with three salaries, possibly four salaries for a supervisor as well going into this. And things like work rules that mandate penalty payments. If you're working on one of these railroads, you have to do some work out of your official job description, out of your yard. You get tremendous penalty payments for these, and these all add up in some cases to tens of thousands of, of dollars a year. Swing shifts is another issue, or swing time rather, is another issue where you have an engineer who comes into the city, does a round-trip run, and then he's paid three-fourths of, of his pay to you know, take a several hours long break before finishing the route. Now, clearly, they need some downtime. You don't want them going eight hours running a train the entire time for safety reasons, but there's some compromise between having you know, many, many hours of pay a day at three-fourths pay and having some reasonable safety breaks. So in other words, for people who are looking at this who are familiar with how overtime works in any job, if you see somebody whose base pay was 75000 and they were earning an average of 89000 in overtime, it doesn't mean they were working 20 or 30 extra hours a week. It could just mean that they were working at a title or put in an extra hour or two here or there. And you put it all together and you end up more than doubling your salary. 
Right, and many inefficiencies introduced by these work rules. You know, for example, at the New York City Transit, which runs the subways and buses, you have track workers. They cannot be on the tracks during rush hour for very good safety reasons. But at the same time, the scheduling rules mandate that these workers are scheduled during rush hour. If you had much more flexibility on the rules, you could schedule them you know, overnight shifts, more weekend shifts, and save a tremendous amount of overtime. Now, these work rules, as I understand it, are in the collective bargaining agreements, though, correct? Right, and that is right now the newish MTA chief, Jay Walder, who's been on the job uh, nearly a year now, so I guess he's not so new anymore. This has been one of his goals, to work with the union to try to cut down on some of these work rule costs, but we'll see how much concrete progress they come up with. You were pounding the table, one of the few people, about this issue of the contract last time, because... As we know, the last time the contract came up for negotiation, that basically the governor's office, which essentially controls the MTA, kind of sent word to the MTA management that they didn't particularly care to have a tough negotiation and that the management should go along with the union's request for arbitration. And people who are involved in public sector labor bargaining know that arbitration means that you basically have an arbitrator who splits the baby and gives the union whatever the average is for everybody else in the area who's in a public sector union, which is what happened. They, that's how they got their 4% a year. And arbitration doesn't produce creative changes in work rules or anything like that. So the question now is, when does this contract expire? Because that would seem to be the next opportunity they have to really do some hard bargaining over this. Right, it actually expires soon. So it would be up again in 2011. This is something that Walder needs to be thinking about. And it's also something, you know, you mentioned the political pressure on the MTA. It, it shows why we have a gubernatorial election coming up. You need political support for real sea changes at the MTA. You know, the MTA can do a lot of this work itself, but much of what the Empire Center has talked about in Blueprint for a New York State Budget things like wage freezes. These are things that you need clear signal from the governor that this is something that uh, he wants from the MTA as well. Right, because we know a governor is in a position to pull the rug out from under whoever is running the MTA. You and I are frequently asked by people about the MTA. Jay Walder, for instance, was recruited to run the MTA. He had been in London for a while, and he has an enormous salary. I forget what it is, and a big fat golden parachute. And people ask us, well, is that outrageous? Is that excessive? And I think what we've agreed to is really the point is if he's a very good manager and he's worth that, you'll never know it unless he is actually allowed to manage. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, you can't have competent management of decline, which is right. what we've seen for, uh, you know, m probably uh, more than half a decade now. Actually, I guess you can date it back to 2000 when the MTA took out an enormous amount of debt under yeah. then-Governor Pataki. Really, in retrospect, set the change from reinvestment in capital, trying to reverse the declines of the 1970s and kind of setting the stage for a slow decline again, unless we do something about it soon. What lesson can we learn from these numbers, Nicole, and how can we relate them to the service cuts we're seeing now? Well, again, I, I want to reiterate that one thing about these numbers is that anyone can go to the website, look at these things if you're curious about the, the pay of the person who uh, is in charge of your train in the morning. People can play around with different job titles, see what this is costing them and where their money is going. And this is also a way to cut through some of the noise uh, in the political world, in the news. For example, uh, Walder has said over the past few weeks that keep 
keeping 400 token booths open under a court order is costing him $40,000 a day. But these wage increases between 2008-2009, these cost $205,000 a day. So freezing wages, you could keep the token booths open and then some. Another thing that, that you could do by freezing wages, today uh, the papers reported that you have 2,400 high school students who are going to walk out of class to protest the fact that Walder wants to make them start paying half fare metro cards in the fall, this would save $127,000 a day. So again, it's dwarfed nearly by double by these, these wage increases. I mean, even just looking from 2008 to 2009 on the issue of the token booth clerks, this cost $188 million in 2009 to, to keep these clerks in stations. That was actually down nearly $3 million from 2008, and that's because they they got rid of uh, 168 token booth clerks already, either through, well, that was all done through attrition. The layoffs are starting now. If you could freeze the average wages for these clerks, you could automatically save 30 of, of these positions. Again, doesn't solve the whole problem, but to people who want a clerk there late at night for safety reasons, for directions, and so forth, freezing the salary, you still have the clerk there, and it certainly causes much less pain to the riders and to the taxpayers. So, so even without the costly work rules and, and overtime issues we were discussing, you could avoid a lot of these service cutbacks and save jobs if they simply had had a salary freeze. And maybe that issue should be on the table, obviously, next time around. Sure, all of these things go together. The salary freeze would buy them some time to deal with, with some of these work rules. That's a much more rational way of uh, addressing these tremendous deficits. Well, Nicole, I, I think we've reached the end of our time, and thanks for uh, having a good chat, as always, about this issue. And again, Folks who want to look at the MTA payroll can go to the website at www.seethroughny.net. Read it and weep, I guess. Thank you very much again. Thanks, EJ.